This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Today, WHO is recommending the broad use of the world's first malaria vaccine. It has been a long time coming. But after more than a century of trying, we finally have a vaccine against malaria. This long-awaited malaria vaccine is a breakthrough for science. And it's sorely needed, because despite our best efforts, malaria still kills 400,000 people every year. And tragically, most of them are young children. Using this vaccine in addition to existing tools to prevent malaria could save tens of thousands of young lives. So, how does this new vaccine actually work? And why has it taken such a long time to get one? From The Guardian, I'm Anand Jagatia, and this is Science Weekly. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dr Latif Ndeketa, a vaccinologist from the Malawi-Liverpool Wellcome Trust who works on malaria. So... Latif, when somebody like me, I live in the UK, when I hear the numbers for how many people this parasite infects and, and how many people die from it each year, it's actually really difficult to get my head around it, really. So as somebody who grew up in Malawi and lives there now, can you give us a sense of what it's like to, to live in a country where malaria is endemic and what the impact of, of the disease actually is on people? On a personal level, as a child, I had malaria several times. Um, having malaria means you miss school, you get hungry, but then you just don't have the appetite. Whenever you eat, you're vomiting, uh, you have this fever. So now as an adult, having a child myself, a one-year-old girl, my daughter might have malaria. I hope she doesn't, but she might have. That must be really scary as a parent. So, so who does malaria tend to hit the hardest? Um, it hits the family the hardest because they have to spend money. They have to spend money going to the hospital, even if there's free health care. And then they lose money indirectly by that loss of income for not working because you're at the hospital with your child um, is also heavy on the family. 
and to talk about the emotional impact now, seeing a child lying there being transfused with a pint of blood, it's horrific for any parent. Over the past few decades, our main strategy for controlling malaria has been to use bed nets, insecticides and drugs. But a vaccine has proved elusive. The new approved jab, known as RTSS, has been in development since 1987. That's over 30 years. Part of the reason it's taken so long is to do with the parasite's life cycle. It's something I spoke to Chris Drakely about. He's a professor of infection and immunity at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he worked on the RTSS vaccine. The malaria parasite does have a really quite complicated life cycle, which if we start at the infected mosquito, when they feed on us in their saliva are what we call the sporozoites of malaria. Now, these are a free swimming form that then from that bite, they move into the liver and then they emerge from the liver into forms that then go through this cycle of invading your red blood cells. Once inside, the parasite replicates and causes the red blood cells to burst, and it's this that makes people ill. The loss of these red blood cells can lead to anemia, and if not treated, coma and death. Just to finish that life cycle, some of those that come out of the red cells decide to become other stages and they need to be taken up by a mosquito when it feeds to complete that life cycle. Wow okay so it is a really complicated process and it's, it's basically as if the parasite is kind of morphing and shape-shifting into new forms in different parts of the body and so if you want to develop a vaccine that there are lots of different stages in that cycle that you could try and you know block it and so this new vaccine the RTSS that's been approved, how does it work then? It has a component of the sporozoite. It's a protein that is all around that motile stage. And is essentially, once you are vaccinated, you will make high levels of antibodies against that particular protein. And those antibodies will stop those sporozoites coming in and invading your liver cells or help to kill it in the blood. There's also some good evidence that they generate specific white blood cells that can attack the sporozoite. The other thing is also that there are different kinds of malaria parasite, right? Different species. There are indeed different species. The vaccine, the announcement for it is primarily directed against the most dangerous, which is a malaria called Plasmodium falciparum. However, there are, I mean, at last count, five other species that, you know, infect humans consistently. It's very unclear whether the vaccine is going to work against them, probably unlikely. So when people are talking about vaccines at the moment, the obvious comparison is is to COVID. COVID is caused by a virus which is simpler and it's kind of easier technically to create a vaccine against that. But on the other hand, we had research groups around the world working together to create the, the ones that we do have today. So is there also an element of you need the political will and you need the funding to make vaccines and make them work? Is that also something that has contributed to it taking so long? 
Absolutely. That, um, almost you could say that is the biggest driving factor. Um, you could imagine that if we still had malaria in Europe, and we used to, even in the UK, I think the last recorded case was the end of the Second World War of locally transmitted malaria. You can imagine that if there were regular cases in Europe or America, then there would be a lot more emphasis or momentum in, in trying to push for uh, a malaria vaccine. The mosquito, the carrier of one of the most deadly diseases in the world, malaria. It's why there's so much excitement about a large-scale pilot of the world's first vaccine for the disease. Children Eventually, that momentum did come to a head. In 2015, a clinical trial of RTSS showed promising results. The next step was to test the vaccine in pilot schemes in Kenya, Ghana and, with a team that included Latif, Malawi. So they wanted to see how the vaccine would perform in a real-life setting because in a clinical trial setting, every child was sleeping under a mosquito net. But in real life, you don't really get that. So another reason was um, this vaccine has been given with four shots, uh, starting at five months and then six months and then seven months of age of the child. And then the fourth shot is at 22 months. So that additional layer of readiness of, of, of processes of trainings that had to be done at a national level. I imagine that wasn't easy. What were some of the biggest challenges? Having to vaccinate thousands, and this is the biggest pilot ever done, that means you, you, you're dealing with different cultures. So there are some people who don't believe in vaccines. There are some people who are actually positive about vaccines. And then we had areas where that are hard to reach areas where our vaccinators had to drive to a certain extent, then get out of the car and then take a boat. And I'm not talking about a speedboat or a motorboat, you know, someone is paddling through and then get to the other side of the river just to reach these children. And also this was going on in the middle of COVID. How did the pandemic affect things? Not only was it difficult for people to move around once the lockdown started in all these countries but also it was also difficult because of all the vaccine hesitancy and the misinformation that was spreading around the COVID vaccine uh, but then as time went and and research and were able to communicate with the with the communities uh, then things started getting better we were able to get people to uh, immunization centers and the vaccinations were able to happen. That's really good to hear that you were able to build that trust and, and, and get vaccines into people's arms. On a personal note, I wanted to ask you, when you heard the news last week that the vaccine had been approved, what were you doing? How did you react? I was in a meeting. I did not know that, that that was the news. I think it was two hours later in which I checked my phone. There were lots of messages, lots of missed calls and lots of congratulatory messages. When I logged on on the internet, I was like, ah, okay, this is it. Yeah, so it was it was a relief because a lot of people's sweat has been put into this. Was there also a sense of you know pride that this was something that you've been working on for a while and it's come to fruition? Yeah, on a personal level, I've been working on this before the pilot even started. I've sort of put my life into this. I've put my some of my career aspirations on hold a little bit, uh, just waiting for to get to this milestone and then I can do other things. So yeah, on, on a personal level, it was, there was a little bit of pride in there. Thankfully, the pilot confirmed that the vaccine was still effective in the real world and it could reduce serious cases of malaria by 30%. Along with existing measures, that is going to save many lives. 
But compared to other vaccines, that figure does seem, well, low. I put that to Chris Drakely. You know, in any other infection, a 30% efficacy would be seen in, in a very poor light. But despite all our other efforts with mosquito nets and access to treatment and diagnostics, we still have half a million kids dying in Africa a year, you know, and that's just too many. So anything that can bring that down, you know, we have to use. There is already another vaccine which is similar to RTSS called R21, which has been shown to have very similar and it may well be better efficacy than that. But there are also other vaccines that are in development. They're targeted against different life stages. And what we may end up with is some combination. So we're targeting the parasite at the different life cycle stages with the same vaccine. And now that we do have a vaccine, finally, what does that mean? Is this the beginning of the end of malaria? I want to be super positive, and I, I should be, because I think having a vaccine against malaria is, is right for many different reasons, you know, just primarily the children that we can protect with this. However, it's not a, a silver bullet, the vaccine. It's part of an armory against uh, malaria, and we need to continually support the research and development angle of that, looking for new targets, new drugs, new approaches, but also ensure that we support endemic countries to make sure that they can have mosquito nets, to make sure that we've got drugs there. We're still in it for the long haul, I'm afraid. Chris, uh, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks to Professor Chris Drakeley and Dr Latif Ndeketa. You can read more about global efforts to tackle malaria at theguardian.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, please do. It's scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Bye. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 